This is the Digital Nomad Quest podcast with Sharon Sung, teaching people how to build passive income, become financially free, and design their best lives. Hey guys, it's Sharon from Digital Nomad Quest, and today we have Michael Zuber. So I was very interested in your background, and I heard that you know you achieved financial freedom, mm-hmm. was able to hit over 150 units, right? Mm-hmm. Cool. So yeah, maybe you can tell us about yourself, introduce yourself. Uh, so again, thank you. This is uh, Michael Zuber. I actually have my wife just outside the door here. So I'm a Silicon Valley-based employee, or at least I was, for 20-some-odd years. And what I did is I built up a portfolio of rentals over the course of 15 years and left the rat race, quit high tech February 1st of last year. So it's been 16 months or so. And all of that because of rental properties bought while I worked, right? So I did it as, as what is popular today is called a side hustle. So mm-hmm. that's my story. Awesome. So why did you choose real estate investment out of everything? I'm interested in it too. I've been also building like passive income online businesses, but this is something I want to do as well. But maybe you can tell us about it. Yeah. So my story began on my 30th birthday, which is closer to two decades ago than than not. So I'm, I'm older. But when I was 30, a, a book came along my possession called Rich Dad Poor Dad. And it's the only book I've ever read cover to cover five times because it just, it it wasn't a great book, right? It's not written really well, right? (laughs) There's grammatical errors and all of that. But it it, it had enough concepts that shook me that caused me to to like go, I have to read that again because I wasn't sure I understood it. And a couple of them were, you know, basically there is this thing called a rat race. Mm -hmm. And nobody in my family or anybody had ever even hinted at something like that, right? I was doing what my family called successful. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm the only college graduate in my family. I'm the only one with an MBA. You know, I was making six figures in my 20s, far more than anybody else in my family. Right. I was paying more taxes than most of the people in my family make wow. in, in income. So I was the successful one. Mm-hmm. And then this book sort of shook me and goes, you're in a rat race. You're just making more money. You're spending more money. You know, what are you doing, silly? And then, of course, it talks about the condo they bought. Right. The first condo I think they bought in Portland or something where they made 50 bucks a month. And that was just like. Okay, I get it, right? That, that's yeah. my path. So I didn't really see another way, right? Shopify wasn't around, all these other business and apps and these things didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Not to say that my skill set probably would have done those things, Yeah. but real estate was, un- I could understand it, I could see it, I could touch it, I could evaluate it. I understood buying at a discount. I don't mind talking to people. Mm-hmm. So it kind of fit and it was something I could do on the side, right? I had a demanding sales job either as an individual contributor, manager, or second line leader. So I could be anywhere on the planet mm-hmm. and I was still able to build a portfolio off hours, you know, by outsourcing different tasks like property management and stuff. So real estate was the thing. I, you know, I wasn't going to create a company. I'm not an athlete. I'm not a singer. So I knew I wanted out of the rat race at some point. I wasn't positive it would happen, right? Because you live in the Silicon Valley is a big nut to, to get to. Mm-hmm. But we got there in 15 years and I'm really glad we started. Awesome. So like compared to, you know, stock investment and things like that, would you say it's because it's tangible that that's what? Well, there's there's lots of different things. First and foremost, I come off of when I was 29, both Enron and WorldCom being two stocks that blew up my portfolio Mm -hmm. uh, to the tune of six figures. Right. So Mm -hmm. I know about writing off three thousand dollars a year in in losses on my tax return. Right. It's it's terrible. Um, So I I haven't touched stocks since then. Mm -hmm. In, In addition to stocks is. You really have to be active during the day, right? You can have any any swings, and if you can't get out mm-hmm. when something happens, and like you can only do stuff out, off hours, you're kind of missing the momentum, right? So, 
I, I, I couldn't spend enough time to evaluate. I wasn't smart enough to figure it out. I knew I wasn't Warren Buffett. So stocks really weren't a way. It could, it could store wealth, mm -hmm. maybe build some of it, but it wouldn't give me the cash flow because I don't know about you, but my bills come in monthly mm -hmm. and I have to pay them monthly. So mm -hmm. I needed something that could become consistent and then yeah. build mm -hmm. and stocks aren't an option in my opinion. Got it. And you said like real estate was a side hustle and that you, you had a demanding job. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that it didn't take that much time? Like, yeah, I, I would say for the first decade, right, when we were purely in acquisition mode, we probably, we, again, this is a husband and wife team, right? So mm -hmm. I would say collectively we spent five hours a week, so 20 hours a month. That was roughly 50-50 oh. probably. Exactly. I would say half that time was acquiring or dealing with what we just bought because we were buying stuff that was rough that had to go through fix-up and all of that. And then the other half is what my wife was much better at, was, was auditing the books, looking for errors, really double-checking the property managers because mm -hmm. that was something we outsourced. But we always wanted to find deals and then control the spend. And, and she was wonderful at that and deserves all the credit cool. in the world. So you guys both did it together. Oh, yeah. I, I fully recommend if, if you are in a committed relationship mm -hmm. that you and your significant other sit down and go, do we want to do this? Because real estate, I promise you, will have bad days. Yeah. Right. I write about a, our first property we ever bought in the book called One Rental at a Time. And I promise you, most people, if you're not committed, would not have bought a second property. Right. So this story starts with us spending a year looking for something. We find something. We buy it. We stick a tenant in. We, we celebrate. Right. It's mm -hmm. working. Right. We're now rich dad, poor dad because we have a house. Unfortunately, after two weeks, the wife leaves. The husband decides to start drinking and never pays rent again. And this mm -hmm. is California, so that's 60 days to, to get them out. So again, think about that, right? So we spend a year, we finally find something, we buy it, we celebrate, we never get another month of rent, we spend three months getting them out, and then we spend 15 grand after he leaves, right? How many people would do that and do another one? Yeah. And, and, and Olivia deserves huge credit for doing that. And that's why I think you have to be on board with your significant other, because I, I truly hope it doesn't happen to you in your first investment, but it will happen if you do this long enough and you, you've got to be on the same page or, or you're asking for trouble. Yeah, definitely. And let's back up. So how did you choose Fresno out of all neighborhoods? That's a good question. So it, in fairness, if you rewind our story to just finishing Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I probably consumed dozens of books by then. And all the books I read at the time said invest in your backyard, right? Mm -hmm. Which, you know, the books say 30 minutes for your home. So I talk about spending a year looking. And we spent every Sunday for 52 weeks in a row looking in the Bay Area for cash flow rentals. And it, wow. keep in mind, this is 2003, right? Mm -hmm. So it's impossible then, let alone 2019. Um, so that's it forced us to decide. So I remember sitting around the kitchen table and I'm going, okay, Olivia, what do you want to do? We can either go out of state, look at Texas at the time was hot and, and Vegas was hot again, 2002, 2003, or we can pull out a California map and see what else makes sense. Mm -hmm. So we decided that we were type A and also I traveled for a living. So the last thing I wanted to do was get on an airplane to see my rentals. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, <laughs> out, of, out of state's off the question, out of the question. Okay. So we pulled out the California map and started drawing circles. Mm -hmm. and, and Fresno was the first large market. At the time, it was about 800,000 people. That made sense, right? We could buy a hundred thousand dollar house that would rent for a thousand dollars, which is the one percent rule. Yeah. So that's why Fresno. It was only after we looked in our backyard, and our backyard didn't make sense. Okay. Did you look on like Redfin or what kind of sites? Did they you didn't look? exist. Oh wow. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's not forget how old I am. <laughs> how did How did you do it then? It, it was actually just a California map, and then whatever the the equivalent of Realtor.com was back at the day. Um, the day. 
but there was also agents just putting out stuff on the web. So I actually found a local agent that put out a screen of the MLS and I used that, you know, sort of a client login kind of thing. Uh So that's what we used back then. And then I would have, I would have agents actually email me my search criteria, like actual paper, like email that Mm -hmm. I'd have to print. So it was definitely a different time. Yeah, that's interesting. (laughs) And Okay, so I know Fresno has like a decent amount of crime, right? Mm-hmm. So were you guys worried about that at all? So we we certainly looked at that, but if you break down Fresno into sort of its submarkets, it definitely is dominated in certain areas, right? Mm-hmm. There is a and certainly back in two thousand three, it was far more gang related in what's called the West Side. Mm-hmm. So guess what? We ignored the West Side, right? There are okay. actually very nice sort of middle income what what in the Bay Area we would call Sunnyvale. There are many, many places in, in Fresno, like Sunnyvale, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, bread and butter, two-bedroom, two-bath, one-story cottages built in the 50s, and that's where we focused. Okay, interesting. Okay, so how did you, I guess, learn about the best and worst areas in Fresno? We, again, you, you need to network, you need to ask people, you need to, you need to double-check and cross-check people. That's something we did a really good job of. So I was in sales, so I set up a personal goal of meeting two people a week oh, for a long time, so I did that for almost 10 years. But in the beginning, it was all about asking people and then double checking. It was like, okay, this is okay. We heard so and so say this. All right, so take that piece of data and double check it with them, and double, and then you know you start driving around. And, and again, we went probably three times a month for several years. Mm-hmm. What now is called driving for dollars, just to figure out neighborhoods. We started really, really small, mm-hmm. right? We're we're talking probably. 20 square blocks is where we started, right? Trying to learn, and you can drive that in an afternoon. Mm-hmm. And then we just started to grow and grow comfortable and, and, and grow up. But we stayed in that same, call it a mile square, mm-hmm. for five years oh, right? before we started get, feeling comfortable going else, elsewhere. Okay. So mainly it was like go to the location, meet people, figure it out that way, not like online. Or no. Well, online, I mean... What you have today with Zillow and Google Maps and Street Views, that stuff didn't exist. That's true. Come on now. <laughs> but, but still, even with those tools, it would still be hard to gauge, right? I, I believe there's a bunch of people using that stuff today as a crutch, and okay. they are making horrible decisions. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, horrible decisions. Okay. If you want to start there and go yeah. and pull out a map and color code it and go, okay, I'm going to look here. Mm-hmm. If you don't get your butt on the ground and actually go see it, you're going to get taken. Yeah. Because I can tell you, I've been to these other cities in Cleveland and these other markets where if you like are half a block away, mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, it's like night, I mean, you go across <laughs> that stop sign. Yeah. I mean, you're getting shootings every night and you can't tell uh, that stuff on, on, you know, when you just look, yeah, they all look the same, right? They're all 50 year old houses. You're cute. Yeah. You get off your butt, get on the ground. And, and again, there's a lot of people doing turnkey investments in the center of the U.S. and some mm-hmm. now in the south that are taking advantage of California investors who are being lazy, right? I don't want to go to Cleveland. I don't want to go to Detroit. But I'm willing to put my money there? Oh, yeah. bad, bad, bad. Yeah, you have to go, huh? Mm-hmm. And I'm actually thinking about investing in Fresno, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, after I you know, heard your talk, I'm looking for like a cheaper first project. Mm-hmm. And then I do have a place in Antioch. Um, okay. But my parents kind of guided me through the whole thing. I just put my money in it. Yes. Well, that's, <laughs> yeah. uh, you got one. I, You're yeah, on your road. but I didn't learn anything from it. So I guess, okay, okay if I'm going to do one in Fresno, mm-hmm. I guess what are some of the actions? Well, steps let I me ask you this. What does do one mean? Does it mean fix and flip? Does that mean buy and hold? Mm-hmm. What, I mean, what's a do one mean? I, I would think buy and hold. Okay. So I'm, I mean, this, ho- this whole channel is all about like passive income. Awesome. And I'm all about that. Okay. And maybe flipping down the road, but I feel like that might be a little more complicated. Oh, yeah, right very now. much. Very yeah, much so. and I think yes. buy and hold would be a good 
first way to go. Mm-hmm. And my brother and I are both interested, so we can like throw down money in it. Oh, so, nice, nice. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, yeah. So I guess there's a couple of things. So first off, I would probably look at different areas. Mm-hmm. Like there's an area called the Tower District nine three seven two eight. It's mm-hmm. it's it's it, when you drive it right. If you have experience with Palo Alto University Street, it's kind of that view where every house is kind of built older, but they're all different. That's not mm-hmm. like you know, like a a standard row houses, solid rents, middle income. You could also do what's called North Fresno, which is the richer area. Mm. And you're just going to get a feel, right? So you're going to get newer builds in the richer areas, but you're also going to pay for that, right? You can probably pick something up, a project in the tower district for 150-ish, right? Plus, minus, whatever, depending on condition. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to go North Fresno, you're talking 250, 275. Rents in the tower are probably 1250, 1300. North Fed knows probably fourteen fifty fifteen hundred. So you you know for the extra hundred grand, you're not getting a lot in rent, mm-hmm. right? The comparison, but again, in the beginning, it's about knowing where your comfort zone, right? I've talked to some people and they go, "Oh, I love Palo Alto," so they're all over the tower district. Other people are no. Some people say, "Hey, I want to live in. I want. I want to. What What's the Cupertino of Fresno?" And it's actually called Clovis, right? It's, okay. it's the award-winning schools and all of that. But you're going to pay through the nose, right? There's nothing in Clovis for you know sub three hundred of any kind of oh, condition, okay. right? Mm-hmm. So you, you have to figure out what kind of investor you, you're comfortable yeah. being. And then you're going to be meeting teams and property managers and, and all of that because at least I would never want to self-manage, right? It's about I don't want to meet my tenants. I don't want any of that yeah. headache. Yeah. I, I have a property manager too. Like I don't want to meet yeah. them. <laughs> I don't, yeah. yeah. Se- segregation of duty. <laughs> I, yeah. I pay you to do that. Yeah. Okay. So you talked about your team, like building your team. So how did you get connected with your team? So again, it's it's really by networking. I would say of, of everybody I worked with my first five years, maybe my first, let's say first three years, I, I hadn't worked with them in year five, right? I met people, everybody sounds good on paper. They yeah. tell you sweet stories. Mm-hmm. But then when push comes to shove, they either don't step up or they lie to you or they try to say, you didn't say that or I said this. So you just have to build time. The thing that I have now looking back seen to be successful is I want to work with other people that are investors. So this is the big find for me is my property manager, after firing the first five, I found a guy, he was young, he was hungry, but he's an investor, right? He owns now as much real estate as we do, Mm -hmm. and he owns a property management firm. So he does that because he wants the tax advantages and savings for himself, but he thinks like an investor. He's investing in the company. He's hiring more people. He's expanding, Mm -hmm. as opposed to some property managers who are real estate agents and property managers on the side or real estate mm-hmm. brokers and property managers. I have seen that model break. Like when the crash happened, I had I was with the team. I was relatively happy. But then the principal, who I was I was his biggest account, started getting all these REO assignments and that's all they wanted to do all day was BPOs and make 500 bucks per report. Mm-hmm. And suddenly property management fell off the radar. I'm like, what are you doing to me, man? I'm trying to buy stuff. Why, why are you turning me away? So you, you got to find somebody who's an investor would be my experience. So, I mean, if they are an investor, what would stop them from, like, just doing it all themselves? And oh, like, there's so many deals out there. No, Yeah, that's a whole scarcity versus abundance mentality. Uh, it's like a mindset thing. Yeah, it's a mindset thing. I mean, that's, I mean, what, why do I talk about Fresno with everybody who asks? It's because I want everybody to be successful that's in lots true. of deals, right? Yeah. If, you're, if you're talking, to, well, first off, the guy wouldn't be a property manager and look to high, get more units yeah. if he could do all the deals himself. Sure. Right? Some people act that way. There are companies in Fresno that are between five and a thousand doors that are all owned by the principal. They do it simply as a tax shelter. Mm. Right, they have a scarcity mentality. I see. Right, the, the the people you you'll run into in real estate, the ones at least the good ones that will be around for a while, they definitely have an abundance mindset. Okay, in terms of your team, do you only really need like a property manager when it comes to buy and hold 
Uh, I think I would think a property manager who has been in that area for you know decades and they have roots there, they're going to be your linchpin. There's no question. You will need others like getting a few real estate agents that can farm for you. Because again, you have a tech job, right? You're in, you're you're two and a half hours away, best case. So having agents that understand and appreciate you and will farm for you, right? Just, it, it, even if you're going to farm yourself, mm-hmm. and having more people farm for you just increases deal flow. Yeah. Now that we do some some flips on the side, right? Mm-hmm. We buy junk, like really bad junk, and then we flip to landlords. Mm-hmm. I do have some GC contacts or general mm-hmm. contractor contacts, mm-hmm. right? But that's not stuff you would do as a buy and hold person. Property manager, number one, maybe some agents. You're going to have some financial contacts or bankers, mm-hmm. but those can all be local. Those can be all Silicon Valley based. Okay. Interesting. So what would be your buying criteria when it comes to, maybe for me then, like if, if I have maybe 40 grand or something I want to put in, like what, what do you think I should look for? So what I would tell someone in your situation, and I do this all the time, it's actually, I actually create stuff that I should have bought in the beginning for people like you. Because as I look back at my career, one of the things that I did wrong that caused me to stay in the game or stay working longer was I bought cheap. Mm-hmm. Right. So I would, you know, like if there's a house at 150 and the next door one was 120 mm-hmm. and just pretend they're the same. Mm-hmm. But the one at 120 needed 15 or 20 grand. I would buy this cheap one. But here's the math. Right. So, OK. So, again, 150 and 120. I buy 120. I get a loan figure. I put 20 percent down I put 24 grand down. But when I do that, I now have to spend 20 grand cash, which now breaks 24 plus 20 is 44 grand. So I'm into this place. cash. Now, yes, I have some artificial equity and maybe someday in the future I could burr out and do all of those fancy things. Mm -hmm. But in reality, with interest rates in the fours, Mm -hmm. I would, I should buy the 150 house because Mm -hmm. it's only 30 grand down, right? 20% of that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get a four interest rate for 30 years and then I'll have money left over so I can get ready for the next one. Okay. Right. This whole, I think the burr strategy Mm -hmm. worked really, really well five years ago when everything was at the bottom. But in today's market where we're far closer to the peak and you can't get those 70% discounts and all those ARV stuff, if I was a tech worker working 60 hours a week, I would buy clean, I would buy already leased and already with a property manager. I would want to remove all the headaches as possible. So that's what I would do. Get between a 5 and 6% return on your your money, but you're going to have no headaches and ideally no repairs for three to four years. Uh, It's a much better business in my opinion. Uh, real quick, can you explain the Burr method for the viewer, though? Sure. So Burr is something that was popularized by, I believe it was Brandon Turner on Bigger Pockets. It stands for Buy, Repair, Rent, Refi, Repeat. So the idea is, is at the point of acquisition, you, you buy a fixer at a steep discount. Mm-hmm. Let's try to do some math. Let's say the house is worth 100 perfect. You're going to buy that thing for 60 grand. You're then going to take 15 or 20 grand and put it in, hence the repair, then you're going to lease it and you say you're going to get $1,000 rent, which is the rent portion. And then you're going to go back to a bank and you're going to refi it out. And you're going to get, I, again, when they sell this to you, they you're going to get all your money back and you're not going to have anything in the deal and infinite return. It doesn't work most of the time today, but that's the story. And then you repeat, hence B-R-R-R-R. Right. So the whole idea is with the limited capital, you could use Burr, could keep recycling your capital. I think it worked great from 2012 to 2017. Mm-hmm. It has worked a lot less well recently. And I actually know more people that have been hurt by Burr because they're tying up money. They're using hard money because they're buying stuff that banks won't lend on. And then they're tying up capital at 10% or 12% and they just can't get their money out because it's a very different market today. So you don't recommend it? Well, again, I've used Burr. I still use Burr today, but I have more time, Yeah. right? I have more relationships. Is it possible? Absolutely. 
But I just did a video, The Dark Side of Burr, on my YouTube channel because there's a lot of risk in that. And I believe in today's market where we're closer to the peak than the trough, Burr is going to hurt a lot more people than it helps. You really need an accelerating market to have Burr cover you. Because Mm -hmm. in an accelerating market, like from 12 to 16, if prices rise 3% a month, you're sort of protected if you overpay. But in a market that rolls over where they're flat or they're declining 1%, you could get in trouble pretty quickly. Got it. And going back to the buying criteria, mm-hmm. so is there a number of bedrooms like you recommend or like number of bedrooms? That's a good question. No, I mean, you. I mean, it's all about the investor, right? When I started, it was a 322, right? Three bedrooms, two bath, two car garage. Okay. I, but why? Because that's what I lived in. I didn't know any yeah. different, right? Yeah. But in today's market, what I do is I, I you know, if I was starting is I'd want a, f- a 6% return on my money. Okay. If I could get that in a one bedroom, one bath house built in 1950, I'd mm-hmm. take it. If I get that in a, you know, a fourplex, I'd take it. Mm-hmm. Right. It, that's that's the that's the measure. So I think a new investor needs to decide a couple of things. I, am I comfortable buying single family homes? Yes or no. Yeah. Do I want my biggest bang for my residential loan? Right. Because there is a residential loan limit. Right. Which is one to four units. Right. Some people are fixated. They're, like I talk to people at least once a week. All I want is a fourplex. All I want is a, I don't care if they're overpriced. I just want a fourplex. I'm like, OK, overpay. And then some people go and I only I only want I want to chase Grant Cardone and do bigger is better. And they want to do commercial. So. I think investors need to figure out where they want to be. I know that some people talk down single-family homes. I think for the first time in my investing career, single-family homes are better investments than multifamily. There is truth to bigger is better most of the time. I believe so many people are chasing bigger is better that Olivia and I are net sellers of apartments because people are paying 30% more than they should. And if you want to do that, I'll take the money. And, and we'll move it in the houses. So then again, I'm saying this as it's recorded in, you know, the summer of 19, mm. right? If, it, if you watch this in 23, you know, the story may be different. But in the summer of 2019, a single family home is going to produce a better, more consistent return because people stay longer. That's what people don't get about multifamilies is, yes, oh, if one person leaves, I get, you know, 75% of rent and all that nonsense. What you're not talking about is you have a turn, Right? I just did a video today talking about what happens to C-class apartments in a recession. Mm-hmm. Because the argument is a C-class apartment is going to protect me in a recession because occupancy is going to go up. Mm. Well, yes, sort of. Occupancy is going to go up. But what is going to actually happen because we lived through it is what's going to happen is the people that are in your building today are going to leave like 20%, 30% because they're going to have they're living paycheck to paycheck. Right they're, They barely qualify for an apartment. So if one of them loses their job, they're done. Mm-hmm. So what they're going to do is they're going to group up in three or four friends and house hack somewhere. Mm-hmm. Right. So boom, leave. Right. Then you got to turn two, four, six grand, whatever that takes. And then the people that were renting A or B class apartments are going to move in. So your occupancy won't be higher. But you're going to force a third of your units to turn. In like 2012, we had the highest occupancy ever in our apartments, but we lost money because of all the turns and it's going to happen again and I don't want people to get hurt because they believe the story of C-class apartments is where you should protect yourself. It's not true. Okay. And I guess how long did it take you to get to 150 units? Mm. Maybe like maybe even just 10 units. Like, yeah, I'll step you through that. Like? Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that I had to do when I got done is I wrote that book, right? One rental at a time. Yeah. So we went from 1 to 8 units over 8 years. Okay. So in the first eight years, we had eight units. I think it was seven houses in a duplex. So basically buying one a year. 
then the crash happened. So this was like 2003, I guess it was five years. So 2003 to 2008, we had eight units. Mm -hmm. Then what we did is we couldn't buy unit nine because the prices didn't make sense, right? That first house I told you about earlier on Norris Drive that had that whole problem with the first tenant, we bought for 107 and we sold it for 263. But here's the problem. It's still rented for 1100. So while it made sense at 100 grand, it didn't make sense at nearly 300. But we sold it because somebody bought it, right? Mm -hmm. But what we did is we did what's called a 1031 exchange in the small apartment buildings. So 2008, 2009 was a big year for us because we went from eight units to 80. No new capital, no new money, mm -hmm. simply 1031 exchanges. And then what happened is the crash happened. So between 2010 and 2014, we bought another... 80 units or so, 75 units, anything from houses to 18-unit apartment buildings that were just totally wrecked, right? We were buying mm -hmm. foreclosed stuff. But again, we had to find ways to buy because banks turned off, so we did hard money and private money. But that got us to roughly 150 units. And then out of the, you know, when it bounced off, when the hedge funds came in, the world was different. Everybody was buying this the junk. You know, we bought a few more things over the next couple of years. And I left work at 177 units. And we've added some since then. Oh, wow. So we're, we're just shy of 200. Wow. Okay. Can you explain like the 1031 exchange, how you went from 8 to 80? Like yeah. How yeah. So let's, we'll do one real example. So that first house we bought on Norris Drive, we bought it for, we'll use, we use simple math, 100 and we sold it for 275. So there's a gain of $175,000, right? And let's just say we put $25,000 down. So we have 200K in, in equity. What we did is we did a 1031 exchange, which allow, and again, it's an advantage of the IRS. The IRS tells you what they want you to do. Mm -hmm. So what they say is, we want people to own real estate and we want you to own bigger and more. So it, you can sell it for what's called a like kind exchange. So basically rental for rental, okay. right? So you can't sell it for rental for my primary residence, not like okay. kind, rental for rental. So we sold the house, we moved the money into an intermediary because I can't touch it. If I touched it, I'm taxed. Right, so it sits in this little bucket. We have 90 days to identify, and then we have six months to close. Uh, and what we did is we bought a five-unit building for 223 grand and moved the money over, and that rented for $3,000. So think about that. We sold a house for 275 in this example that rented for 1100. We bought a five-unit apartment building for 223 that rented for three grand. Okay. I mean, yeah. that's crazy, right? Yeah. So we're, we're very simple, especially me. If some's good, more is better. Mm -hmm. So that 1031 exchange worked so well that we, we bought more, right? We sold every house or exchanged every house and uh, moved it into five, a 10, a seven, a 13, another 10. We just we just bought more yeah. apartment buildings. They're like multi -family. Yep. Oh, okay. Units, okay. yep. Okay. And after that, you like... Were you saving a bunch of money to be able to afford all these like loans? Like, how does that work? Yeah. So the first three loans we bought with our savings. Yeah. We put twenty grand down, ten grand, ten grand. Okay. That was our forty grand. That's all we had to start. Forty okay. grand. So that was about three years in. Then from year three to five, we did what's called a cash out refinance because prices were going up. We refied our first house, pulled fifty grand out. We bought two more. Hmm. We refied the second house. We we took out like twenty five grand, bought something else. Then we did the third one. So that was all just bank lending. Okay. We were saving some money, but it, that's how we got from one to, to eight, right? It was okay. cash out refis. And the, the only 40 grand we had was in the first three houses. Then what we did is we did the 1031 exchanges. Again, no new capital. It was all IRS money. Mm -hmm. And then during the downturn, because banks wouldn't lend, we certainly were saving money and, and living below our means because a lot of our cash would go to buy some of those. Uh, but yeah, those to get to 80 units, it was really that first 40 grand. And then efficiently using cash out refis and the 1031 exchange. Okay. To to get to the last like few in the 200, I mm -hmm. guess. 
So is it still that same strategy with refund? Uh, okay. You know, now that we're done, we do we have a we have a decent savings. We we did liquidate a couple of apartment buildings, so we're we depending on what we're buying, right? If it's cat, you know, sometimes cash is a yes. Okay. So we use cash. We have done some bank lending. What we really like is doing seller financing today. Okay. We've added the most units with seller financing in the last eighteen months. We've added about thirty doors with seller financing, which means, you know, like there's an owner of this water bottle who's owned it for 30 years, has zero cost basis, but they're 70 years old and they don't want to be a landlord anymore. Mm -hmm. If they sell it, they're going to have a huge tax hit, right? Because their cost basis is zero. But if they do a seller financing on what's called an installment loan, they can sell it to me. Maybe they take 20 grand. So they have a little tax hit on the 20 grand and then I give them a $500 payment every month. So I'm spending a lot of time trying to do seller financing today because I can get them for less down. I can control the interest rate. I have no problem dealing with tenants because most of these older stuff have delayed, deferred maintenance and their tenants are renting below market. So I can deal with that stuff. But uh, I really like seller financing today. Okay. Yeah, it's like crazy to me that you can scale to that many. And I didn't think that was possible with just like... You start with your own money, but then you probably use different strategies mm-hmm. to get there, right? Yeah, you certainly can, you know, and I'm not the only one. I've met I've met many, many people over time. It does, it apps, and I remember sitting on airplanes at 30,000 feet when we had five units or 10 units or 13 units going, when is this going to turn around? This little drip, right? Mm-hmm. I can't live on $100. What the heck? <laughs> what the heck? I can't live on $300. What the heck? Yeah. What the heck? You know, at like a year 11, Olivia retires, right? So, you know, just over six-figure income. We replaced it with that. You know, and fast forward three or four more years later, we place another six-figure income. It just, it, wow. it scales, but it does. It's so frustrating. Those first five, six, seven years, it's just drip, drip. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like I have a lot to like study. So do you have any resources you recommend? Well, first, you've got to go out and buy my book, of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's called One Rental at a Time. Mm-hmm. It's on Amazon. It's basically two sections. The first two-thirds of the book are my story in the four segments, basically how we went from one to 175. And then I give you recommendations, how to get started, how to do all of that. Like you, I have a YouTube channel. Guess what? It's called the same thing, One Rental at a Time. I post videos every day. I also take subscriber questions. So people like you who who maybe can't interview me, but you had a question, you just go to any of my videos, Mm -hmm. put in your question. And to date, other than one topic, I've been able to answer it in three days. And the one topic I missed is because I had a vacation. That took me about a week to get to, but I answer them all. Okay, cool. Yeah, so do you have any last words? So this is very informational for me. Yeah. Yeah. I would tell you that, again, sort of like we touched on there at the end, is real estate investing is absolutely going to work. Actually, at the Sean's presentation, I think I started with this. I have these five uncomfortable truths, mm-hmm. which are all can ruffle feathers, but they're true. And, and the last one of the uncomfortable truth is everyone could be successful at this business. Real estate is a physical asset. It doesn't care about your age your race, your history, your sexual preference, whatever it is, it doesn't care. Mm. Everybody can do this. I have interviewed teenagers and 50-year-olds getting started. I have interviewed PhDs and ex-cons who never graduated high school. You can be successful at this business if you commit to learning and move forward at at a diligent rate. Awesome. Thanks so much, Michael, for uh, joining me on this show. And I'll link to all of your resources that you mentioned in the video. And yeah, thanks so much. You got it. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps our podcast grow. And thanks again. I'll see you guys in the next one.